This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up this Sunday morning. Dick Donahue with you here on KGMI. I'm a wealth advisor, certified financial planner, accredited investment fiduciary. Going to start out today by talking about what happened to the recession. You know, in multiple ways, this is the most difficult time that we have ever seen to make a forecast. Unprecedented actions by the government, locking down the economy, printing, borrowing, and spending trillions of extra dollars artificially boosted economic activity, like giving morphine to, into an accident victim, printing and borrowing mass, the pain of lockdown injuries. As these artificial actions wear off, we expect a recession to appear. And in the fourth quarter, retail sales, industrial production, and other data suggested that the economy was hitting a wall. Then January happened. Non-farm payrolls, retail sales, and manufacturing production all surged. But we think these reports overstated economic activity. The U.S. had unusually warm January weather. In addition, seasonal adjustment factors played a key role in making the economy look better than usual as well. In January, the national average temperature in the lower 48 states was 35.2 degrees. That's the fourth highest for any January in the last 30 years. New home foundations could be dug. Fewer plants closed due to the weather. And more people could comfortably be out and about. Normal seasonal adjustment factors also played a role. Before seasonal adjustments, non-farm payrolls fell 2.5 million in January. But after adjusting, they reported up 517,000 for the month. Before adjusting, retail sales fell 16.2%. But after the government applied normal seasonal factors, sales were reported up 3%, the largest gain for any month in almost two years. In other words, the reason the government reported that jobs and retail sales were up wasn't that they actually rose in January relative to December, but they fell less than they normally do. No one is manipulating the data, nor are we trying to imply that there's anything illegitimate about seasonally adjusted economic activity. Seasonal adjustments are important. For example, agriculture follows weather patterns and holiday shopping is seasonal. If we didn't adjust for these patterns, the economy would shrink every year in the first quarter, going back pretty much forever, with a big rebound in the second quarter every year and another surge in the fourth quarter. And now, because of COVID, government shutdowns, and the fiscal and monetary policy response, the normal seasonal patterns of economic activity have been distorted even more. That means that we're probably going to experience some months like November and December where activity actually appears unusually weak and others like January where activity appears unusually strong. The best rule of thumb is to wait for at least a few months in a row of unusual strength or weakness to draw any conclusions. The bottom line is that the yield curve, this deeply inverted, is a negative sign for future economic growth. Meanwhile, the M2 measure of money has slowed sharply. The growth of M2 measure of the money supply was unusually fast through January of 22. In the past year, it is reported as falling for the first time since the 1940s at the fastest pace since the Great Recession. If M2 affects real inflation-adjusted economic output with a lag of the year or give or take, then the support for activity likely peaked very early this year and should dwindle sharply by year-end. We obviously hope there's no recession on the way. It's pretty obvious that the stock market isn't worried, but January's economic data aren't as clear as many might think. And after preparing this, we also got hit with the Silicon Valley Bank news. More will be revealed. Let's take a look at our global roundup for the week. We saw that financial stability concerns overshadowed hawkish Fed. 
Global equities are lower on the week amid a spike in concerns over the banking sector. The yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury tumbled from 4.01% a week ago to 3.74%, while volatility as measured by the CVOE Volatility Index, or VIX, rose to 23.6 from 19.3, and the price of the barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil slipped to 76.65 from 77.50 a week ago. And global macro news, we saw that markets price aggressive fed in and then out. Hawkish testimony on Capitol Hill from U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and strong job openings data pushed Fed funds futures prices to in half a point hike from the Fed at its meeting next week. This came after Powell said that the Fed is prepared to speed up rate hikes if the data warranted it. A strong employment report in which payrolls exceeded expectations, rising 311,000 versus an expected 225,000 rise, likely would have sealed the deal had it not been for a spike in financial stability concerns late in the week. U.S. consumer price data is set for release this next Tuesday, ahead of the Fed's 22nd March rate-setting meeting. But after this week's banking jitters, markets are now betting that a more moderate quarter percent hike is more likely than an aggressive half a percent hike. Terminal rate expectations have fallen by about 40 basis points in the last session and a half. Well, and U.S. bank shares are coming under pressure. Financials came under pressure on Thursday afternoon after two specialist banking companies made headlines. The first was Silvergate. It's a crypto-focused bank that announced it would wind down operations due to the fallout from the implosion of FTX. The second was SVB, which is a Silicon Valley-based lender focused on the technology startups. The shares in SVB fell more than 60% on Thursday, another 63% on Friday morning before its shares were halted as the bank was forced to book losses on securities sold to cover a rise in deposit outflows and then seek a buyer for the business after failing to raise capital on Friday. SVB's woes were unique to its business model and nevertheless caused investors to take a closer look at the large, unrealized losses being carried on the books of U.S. banks generally. These losses are usually excluded from earnings unless an institution is forced to sell securities to offset lost deposits. Yields on U.S. Treasuries tumbled late in the week on growing concerns that the aggressive Fed tightening cycle may be beginning to have undesirable economic side effects, raising financial stability concerns. SVBB was placed in a receivership by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And Biden's budget targets high earners. I talked about this quite a bit on yesterday's show. Uh, you can get that at kgmi.com under podcast if you want to listen to that show. I covered a lot of really deep information, and I say deep. It was deep. Anyway. The White House unveiled its fiscal 2024 budget proposal on Thursday. It enacted the plan is forecasted to reduce the budget deficit by $3 trillion over the next 10 years while raising taxes by $2 trillion. U.S. President Biden's proposal would increase capital gains taxes on those earning more than $400,000 a year to 45%, while increasing the corporate tax rate to 28% from 21%. However, with Republicans in control of the House of Representatives, the odds of this package passing in its present form are close to zero. And Japanese wages may be rising. Ahead of the 15th of March deadline, 18 Japanese labor unions representing 240,000 workers in the service, textiles, and distribution sectors reached agreement with employers on hiking wages and averaging 5.3%. The settlement sets the stage for Japanese workers to enjoy a significant boost in real wages, which was a prime goal of Prime Minister Kishida. Well, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. We'll be back after this. Thanks for being with us today. Where do you go to find the best steakhouse between Seattle and Vancouver, B.C.? Northwest Washington's famed Steakhouse at Silver Reef is the place for award-winning, unforgettable fine dining. Savor our Northwest-sourced, dry-aged USDA prime steaks. Finish to perfection in our 1,800-degree broiler. Immerse yourself in world-class elegance. Browse our award-winning wine and spirit list, while our attentive staff help to create lasting memories. Reservations are recommended through SilverReefCasino.com or by calling Silver Reef Casino Resort. At Silver Reef Casino Resort, we've got that. Escape the hustle and bustle of the city and get ready for a fun and relaxation-filled getaway. Luxury hotel rooms? Yep. Championship golf? Mm-hmm. Top-rated casino with all the best slots and table games? Yes and yes. 
world-class dining at the region's best and Wine Spectator award-winning steakhouse? Yes, please. The total package is only missing one thing. You. Silver Reef Casino Resort. Located off I-5, exit 260. We've got that. Hello? Summer? Gee, you sound so far away. Oh, you're right. Now is the time to plan for AC. With Barron's preseason air conditioning special, you can skip the line and save big, like $4,000 big. We've stocked up, and there's no better time to upgrade your whole home comfort system. Special discounts apply to anything that cools, including air conditioning, ductless, and electric heat pumps. With energy savings you'll enjoy for years. Barron's home performance experts look beyond the box, finding you affordable ways to improve the comfort, health, and energy efficiency of your home. 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Call Barron now while supplies last and save up to $4,000 when you upgrade your heating and cooling system with qualifying rebates, incentives, and a Silver Shield membership. We've secured low interest financing so everyone gets cooling. See you soon, Summer. Barron, your full-service HVAC, electrical, and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. We're asset advisors. We are a financial advisory firm. We are located out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center next to Wilson's Furniture. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101 Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number 360-733-1200. And check out our website at wealthwakeup.com. Okay, now we're going to hit some of those global quick hits from the week. I'm going to hit a little bit more information on the employment report in a little bit here, but U.S. non-farm payrolls rose 311,000 in February, while the unemployment rate rose 3.6% from 3.4% in January. Average hourly earnings rose and muted two-tenths of 1%, cooling wage inflation fears. And the U.S. 2- and 10-year yield curve hit its most inverted level since 1981 at minus 111 basis points. That means that the 10-year bond was 111. That's over 1.11% lower than the two-year. And that's after this week, after Powell's hawkish congressional testimony that steepened late in the week as bank shares sold off. According to analysts at Deutsche Bank, there have been only seven instances historically in which the curve was inverted more than 100 basis points. Each time, the economy has entered a recession and has fallen into one within eight months. Amid lingering concerns over high debt limits, lingering property woes, Chinese officials set forth a relatively conservative 5% growth target for 2023. And since the beginning of the year, consensus for 2023 S&P 500 earnings estimates have fallen 3.4% to $222.80, according to FactSet. And the Australian dollar weakened this week after the Reserve Bank of Australia hiked its cash rate 25 basis points, that's a quarter of 1% to 3.6%, but indicated that it would pause its tightening cycle. And the Mannheim U.S. Wholesale Used Car Index rose 4.3% in February, which is the largest February increase in 14 years. The rise helped rekindle inflation concerns. And amid simmering tensions between the U.S. and China, Chinese Foreign Minister Quinn Gang this week warned that if the United States does not hit the brakes but continues to speed down the wrong path, no amount of guardrails can prevent derailing, and there will surely be conflict and confrontation. And the United Arab Emirates this week denied that it is considering leaving OPEC. And protests in France against President Emmanuel Macron's Proposed pension overhaul turned violent on Tuesday. Macron wants to raise the national retirement age to 64 from 62. Hmm, poor people. Anyway, as expected, the Bank of Canada held rates steady at 4.5% this week. And the Fed's beige book showed that labor market conditions remain solid and that inflationary pressures remain widespread, though they are expected to moderate. 
The Bank of Japan left policy unchanged as outgoing Governor Kiruta's last meeting as governor. And U.S. weekly job claims jumped to 211,000 in the latest week from 190,000 the week before. Let's talk about that employment report. The job market remained strong in February, but not quite as strong as the headlines suggest. Non-farm payrolls increased 311,000 in February, beating the consensus expected 225,000. Meanwhile, civilian employment, which is an alternative measure of jobs that includes small business startups, increased a solid 177,000. The unemployment rate rose to 3.6% from 3.4% in January, but that was due to positive news and increase in labor force people who are either working or looking for work of 419,000. The labor force participation rate, which is the share of adults in the labor force, is now 62.5%. That's the highest since March of 2020. So far, so good. However, there are also signs of softness in the report. In particular, average hourly earnings rose an unusually small two-tenths of one percent and are now up 4.6% from a year ago. The two-tenths of one percent gain in February itself is the smallest gain for any month in a year, suggesting that job growth in higher wage occupations or at higher paying companies has slowed. And although a 4.6% gain in average hourly earnings would normally be good, it's not a positive sign for worker purchasing power where consumer prices are up more than 6% over the same period. Meanwhile, in spite of an increase in jobs, the total number of hours worked in the private sector declined one-tenth of one percent in February. And total private sector wages, which are a combination of total hours worked and average hourly earnings, are up two-tenths of a percent in February. That's the smallest increase in two years. So when you put it all together, what we have is a labor market that is still strong, but which is showing some signs of softness and is not invulnerable to a recession. The labor market is often a lagging indicator, and it may be even more so now, because for the first time in more than 20 years, the business faced tightened recession risks due to tight money policy rather than mark-to-market rules or COVID lockdowns. In other recent news, on labor market, initial claims for jobless benefits rose 21,000 last week to 211,000. Continuing claims increased 69,000 to 1.718 million, tying the highest level since January 22. These figures are consistent with a further slowdown in payroll growth coming up for the month of March. And we also got the January International Trade Report this week. And in January, the trade deficit in goods and services hit $68.3 billion as exports expanded faster than imports. However, we prefer to focus on the total volume of trade, which is imports plus exports, as it represents the extent of business and consumer actions across the U.S. border. This measure expanded significantly by $18.1 billion in January, increased by 7.6% compared to a year ago, but still remains 2.8% lower than last year's peak in June. And although this growth is positive, it's worth noting that it is driven not only by an increase in goods and services, but also by higher prices. It is important to remember, too, that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the easing of COVID restrictions in China may affect trade patterns for some time. The good news is that the supply chain problems have improved dramatically. For example, Captain Kip, who's the executive director of Mean Marine Exchange of Southern California, declared the container ship backup ended on November 22nd. It took nearly 25 months, but things are finally back to normal as the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. In some cases, weights have just shifted to other ports, but daily freight rates are also falling rapidly and back to pre-COVID levels as demand has also weakened. The New York Fed's Global Supply Pressure Index was also confirmed this in February, with the index reaching negative territory for the first time since August of 19. Weaker demand, coupled with easing of part shortages and less shipping congestion, have pulled the indicator lower in seven of the last ten months. 
Also notable in the report, the dollar value of U.S. petroleum exports exceeded imports again. In the past year, U.S. petroleum exports have exceeded imports in 10 of 12 months. For the full calendar year of 22, the U.S. became a net exporter again of petroleum products. What this means is much of the release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve just flowed overseas. In labor market news, the ADP employment report showed a gain of 242,000 private sector jobs in February, which was above the consensus estimate of 200,000. And very quickly here, we're seeing that Americans' personal finances outlook is getting gloomer, according to a new survey. Americans are turning pessimistic about their personal financial outlook over the coming year as interest rates increase and pay rates slow down. Less than one-third of respondents to a monthly survey conducted by Fannie Mae said that they expect their personal financial situation to get better over the next year. That's the lowest reading in a series that goes back more than a decade. The decline in sentiment comes as the Federal Reserve signals it will extend a campaign of rate increases, which is pressuring the housing market. The Fannie Mae survey had some bad news for both owners and renters. It found out that respondents expected a drop in home prices for the seventh straight month, while rents are seen rising 7.6% in the coming year, which is the most since July. And even though U.S. labor markets have been strong, the survey also found an increase in concerns about job security. The share of employed respondents said that they are concerned about losing their job rose to 24%, the highest in more than two years. That matches analysts' expectations that unemployment currently at a half-century low of 3.4% will climb by more than one percentage point over the coming year as the economy slows. Dick Donahue with you with Wolf Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be right back. A conservative take on issues important to Whatcom County and the Pacific Northwest. This sounds crazy that you're going to tell the schools you must do extra service for those kids with learning difficulties. But when it comes to especially gifted kids, we can't give them special classes because it doesn't include a sufficient percentage of kids of color. Yes, that's what's actually happening in Washington State. Lars Larson, noon to three each weekday on KGMI. Great summers start at Wilson's Furniture. Wilson's is where you'll find the biggest and best selection of patio and outdoor furniture north of Seattle. If you haven't shopped for patio furniture lately, you are going to be amazed at the variety you're going to find. Wilson's has patio furniture made in aluminum, wrought iron, antique. You'll find motion furniture, pub style, fire pit groupings, sectionals, love seats, and more. Way too many combinations to even describe. You truly have to see for yourself the selection at Wilson's. And the staff at Wilson's are experts in helping guide you through your shopping experience, helping match you, your budget, and lifestyle with the perfect combination of furniture that you'll enjoy not just this summer, but for years to come. Looking for a new way to enjoy the summer night, even when it's a bit cool? You'll love what you'll find at Wilson's Furniture. Open seven days a week on Pacific Highway in Ferndale. You'll love what you find at Wilson's. Fires are deadly and can wipe out your business or home in a matter of minutes. If you need fire sprinkler installation, testing, repair, or service, nobody protects the Northwest like Columbia Fire. Marty Boonster here with Columbia Fire. You name it, we protect it. Schools, office buildings, high-rises, even residential too. For the last 35 years, Columbia Fire has been your one-stop shop for all things fire sprinklers. Get on our schedule today at ColumbiaFire.net. ColumbiaFire.net. Why West Edge Credit Union? Because they're all about the community. Of course I like that West Edge has low interest rates and loan specials. But what I really love is that West Edge partners with local nonprofit and City of Bellingham organizations. Plus they put on events like Community Shred. And they talk to me like I'm a real person, not an account number. West Edge really cares. Join West Edge Credit Union today. West Edge is federally insured by NCUA. West Edge Credit Union, on the corner of Jameson, Alabama, in Bellingham. Hi, I'm Tom Borthwick, the Diamond King. When the time is right and you're thinking of proposing to your gal, we at Borthwick Jewelry have over 400 different engagement rings in stock. We make it fun and think everybody deserves a big diamond and you can try them all on until you find the perfect one. After finding the perfect ring, we have financing with no money down. We have financing for people with not the best credit. We at Borthwick Jewelry are here to make your life easy. We even have a warranty. 
Shop at Boardfoot Jewelry when it's time to buy that diamond ring. Cascade Radio Group and HireMeWa.com present the CRG Job Fair, Thursday, March 16th from 2 till 6 p.m. Find your next full-time, part-time, or seasonal job. If you have skills, we have employers on site that want to talk to you. If you need training, we have the businesses who will train you too. Don't know what type of job you want? Talk directly to businesses hiring from a multitude of industries all at one convenient location. Businesses like the Silver Reef Casino, Ground Busters Northwest, Madomi Manufacturing, Whatcom County, and more. Thursday, March 16th only, the CRG Job Fair, happening at Four Points by Sheraton in Bellingham next to Fred Meyer from 2 till 6 p.m. There's no better place to find a quality job. So save the date, Thursday, March 16th, 2 till 6 p.m. Multiple businesses, multiple industries on site, including Cascade Radio Group, Trident Seafoods, and the Bellingham Fire Department. Job Fair, Thursday, March 16th at Four Points by Sheraton in Bellingham. Visit this station's website for details. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Don't worry about your furnace on the coldest days of the year. Talk with West Mechanical, your independent train dealer, about replacing your old inefficient furnace with a train comfort system. Today, find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome back to Wolf Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here on KGMI. Well, saw a proposal come out from the Biden administration, a billionaire's tax, but don't bet on it. You know, the political makeup just doesn't bode well for passing major tax legislation. The bill imposes a specific levy on billionaires would be substantial. Let's talk about this some more. President Biden may have called for tax on billionaires in his State of the Union address last month. The idea is unlikely to travel from his speech into law. He pitched a minimum 20% tax on households with a net worth of more than $100 million. That's 150% higher than the average that they currently pay, according to published reports. I did talk about this yesterday, about the uh, top 1% paying over 42% of taxes. You might want to go back and listen to that show on the podcast here on KGMI.com. The challenge for Biden is that the audience that he addressed on the Capitol on February 7th consisted of Republican House and Democratic Senate, and each chamber that parties hold a slim majority. The political makeup doesn't bode well for passing major tax legislation, and a bill that imposes a specific levy on billionaires would be substantial. The chatter about a tax on billionaires began in the previous Congress. A Senate bill was introduced briefly during consideration of what became the Inflation Reduction Act. The Senate measure would have imposed tax on assets of the ultra-wealthy, which is a sharp departure from current income-based tax code. But the bill was quickly pulled, even though Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate. In the new Congress, Biden not only would have to keep his own party on board with tax on billionaires, he'd have to convince at least a handful of Republicans to come along. But the likely gridlock at the federal level has inspired Democratic lawmakers to introduce wealth taxes in several states and legislatures, including here in the state of Washington, where the parties control both houses as well as the governorship. But even in blue states, making the rich pay more is not easy. For instance, a law that imposes the first capital gains tax here in the state of Washington has drawn a lawsuit. That lawsuit has been heard by the state Supreme Court. We're waiting for the outcome on that one. But similar obstacles could arise in states that are considering wealth taxes. The more extreme the proposals are if they pass, the more likely that they are to see challenges to them. Floating a wealth tax could be a tactic to raise income tax rates on the risk or close loopholes. A tax on unrealized gains seems like a stretch. It's not just a politically heavy lift to get a tax on billionaires approved. It's also a problem in how it's going to work. So these things, a lot of them keep getting picked out there, but I don't know that they're ever going to make it past the little bit of sunlight through that window. It's not happening. And while we're talking about the wealthy, we're going to find that they could get hammered by the estate tax changes in 2026. I did talk about this briefly a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's worth coming back at again. 
with the possible expiration of some tax provisions of the Tax Cuts and Job Act passed in 2017 by the Trump administration, in three years, this law could change, beginning to turn up the heat on estate tax planning. And though Congress might extend some provisions, it's impossible for us as planners to know what parts of the legislation will remain. Without action from Capitol Hill, two of the biggest changes that could impact the wealthy are the top income tax rate reverting back to 39.6% and about having of the estate tax exemption, which is $12.92 million for this year. So a sunset of the Tax Cuts and Job Acts will impact the wealthy significantly and could expose some estates to the 40% federal estate tax, whereas they're not exposed to that now. The estate tax problem is undoubtedly the biggest potential hit. Those impacted will be those with estates between 13 and 26 million for married couples or 6.5 million to 13 million for singles with no spousal allowance who intended to leave their estate to individuals. Currently, they're going to have little or no estate tax liability under the current law if they fit in those ranges, but that they're going to have significant liability on January 1st of 2026. Transferring wealth effectively right now might require creative thinking for the established tools. You know, these might include trusts, family limited partnerships, limited liability companies, or charitable entities. It was popular to set up a spousal, and what we called a SLAT, which is a spousal lifetime access trust or other types of grantors trust to take advantage of the higher lifetime exemption as a preemptive step to the Build Back Better law that was lowering that exemption. And of course, we're going to get back around that one again because it's going to keep coming up. You know, and we haven't talked about irrevocable life insurance trusts much in the last few years because of the higher limits, but that also might be a topic of conversation. And keep making annual gifts. One of the big things you can do is make those annual gifts. Right now, this year, it's $17,000 per individual per donor. The other consideration for wealthy individuals is use the full lifetime estate tax exclusion at once. Consider gifting the maximum amount of the allowed exclusion before the law sunsets. Again, this year, that's $12.92 million per person. So that's double if you are married. And taking advantage of these annual gift limits can be a powerful estate planning tool over time, especially if there are multiple family members on a long runway in terms of how many years that you can make these gifts. A married couple can gift each child $34,000, even more if the child is married and or has children, since each recipient is eligible for that amount. This adds up to a very simple way to effectively move assets out of the estate. Again, summarizing that, each spouse can give $17,000 per recipient. That's $34,000 per child, $34,000 to their spouse, $34,000 to each of their children. Again, this can add up very rapidly. Also might want to consider creating a family limited partnership for investment assets and use the annual exclusion gift amount to transfer additional ownership of the family partnership in the next generation each year. You can also have the added bonus of taking a discount on these assets that are given because of what we call an illiquid wrapper of the family partnerships, means that you can transfer 15 to 40% more than just the annual exclusion because in gifting those units, in most cases, they are not liquid. So the wealthy have major assets and IRAs also. If they don't need the money to maintain a lifestyle, they may find converting the IRA to a Roth as a good estate planning strategy to transfer to a tax-free account to their heirs, especially with the new IRS inherited IRA rules that are going into effect. Roth conversions should also be completed prior to 2026 to take advantage of lower income tax rates before the potential rise after the expiration of the Joint Tax Act. And there's still a lot of uncertainty that's going to require that you basically weigh your options. So it is something for you to keep a very close eye on, something for you to consider, something for us to talk about, something for us to help you talk to a tax attorney. Again, emphasis on a tax attorney that does tax and estate planning. That's important that they have that ability. Okay, I always get these questions about Social Security claiming again. In this case, what age can an ex-spouse claim divorce spousal benefit? 
I answered a couple of these lately, but this one's a little different than the others. Maybe because I get one question, I get another one. Anyway, the question one, he says, been divorced for over 10 years and not remarried. I'll be 65 this coming March. Plan on retiring in January of 24. My spouse is five and a half years younger, makes a lot more money than I do. I'm sure my Social Security benefit at full retirement age will be less than 50% of hers at full retirement age. From what I'm gathered from reading, I would have to take my Social Security to start in January 24 and wait until she reaches 62 before I can get the difference in benefits. Basically, an answer to that is that is correct. Your ex-spouse must be at least 62 before you can start divorce spouse benefits based on her record. Keep in mind that when you do add on the divorce spouse benefit, you'll not jump up to 50% of her primary insurance or PIA. Her PIA is the amount that she's going to receive if she applies at her full retirement age. So primary insurance amount, get the maximum amount when you are at full retirement age. In this case, it would probably be 67. So if you take it before that, it's going to be discounted. So rather than the difference between your primary amount and 50% of her primary amount, that'll be added to your existing benefit. So if you apply for your benefit before your full retirement age, you'll be receiving a slightly reduced benefit, about 95% of your primary amount. So your total combined benefit will be a bit less than the 50% of her primary amount. So waiting until your full retirement age, in this case, which would be 66 years and 8 months, to claim your benefit will allow you to receive the full 50% of her primary amount once she turns 62. So another example where we see people wanting to go out there and claim Social Security early, generally, in most cases, they're better off to wait because you're going to have discounts if you take it before full retirement age. Somebody age 60 today needs to be looking at age 67 for their full retirement age. They take it before that, they're going to be taking a discount. Also, of course, if they cannot or delay taking money when they're full retirement age, which let's say again is 67, if they can delay taking that, they're going to get 8% more, at least as it stands under current law. Now, I've talked quite a bit, including on yesterday's show, about tax proposals in the Biden administration to prop up Medicare. I think they're going to have to see something happen because those reserve funds are going to be running out one of these days. I wouldn't be a bit surprised, but what that uh, 8% increase that we've got in the future benefits isn't reduced down or some, something will change. That's almost too good to be true in many cases. And so, anyway, Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We're going to be back in a quick minute or two. Thanks for being with us. Enjoy your retirement at Meadow Greens, a retirement community offering warm, welcoming, independent, and assisted living apartments. Located on a premier golf course in beautiful Linden with panoramic views of green rolling hills and snow-capped mountains, Meadow Greens offers a fitness center, wellness programs, tailored social and recreational activities, and complimentary unlimited golf play with cart at Homestead Golf Club. One- and two-bedroom apartments with full kitchens are available, offering the freedom of eating in or enjoying a more or social meal at the Outward Nine Restaurant or the Duck Hook Bistro. Then relax with a glass of wine with friends or cozy up next to the fireplace with a good book in the library lounge. Meadow Greens can also be of help when it's time to transition from an independent apartment to assisted living. Call Meadow Greens today to arrange a private tour at 354-8200 and online at meadowgreenslinden.com. The grass is always greener at Meadow Greens. Vista Materials is now open. Stop by just north of Ferndale to pick up topsoil, gravel, mulch, sand, and the other landscaping supplies you need to turn your yard into a thing of beauty. Located on Vista Drive, just off Grandview in Ferndale, across from Perry Pallet. Delivery is also available. Check out vistamaterialsinc.com for a full list of products or call 360-366-5239 with any questions. Vista Materials is now open and ready to serve you in Ferndale because roots matter. Did you know you can call or go online for small business advice? SCORE, Mentors to America Small Business, is the best source of free and confidential small business advice to help you build your business from idea to startup to success. SCORE volunteer mentors work with you to help you start a small business or take your existing business to new heights. If you would like free face-to-face mentoring to answer your business questions, contact a local SCORE mentor by visiting SCORE.org and then set your location to Bellingham. It's that simple. That's SCORE.org. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land 
God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up. Dick Donahue with you this Sunday morning here in KGMI. Again, if you got questions for me, give me a call. 360-733-1200. A lot of discussion about the Secure Act 2.0 and the new 529 option of doing a Roth rollover. And of course, we're going to want to read the fine print behind all these headlines, but a lot of hype going on about this one. And hands down, the Secure 2.0 WAC provision allowing tax-free rollovers from 529 plans to Roth IRAs is the number one thing that we're seeing people ask about. And here's why you need to read, though, behind these headlines and understand why this may be an overhyped provision of the Secure 2.0. Let's do some of the 529 plan basics. 529 plans can be withdrawn tax and penalty-free if used for qualified higher education expenses. Qualifying expenses generally include tuition, fees, books, supplies, and computers, plus the cost of room and board for at least half-time students. In addition, up to $10,000 a year of K-12 tuition and up to $10,000 lifetime for student loan payments can also qualify from a 529. So some of that money sitting in 529 plans, if they have student loans, yes, they could take up to $10,000 and apply that to their student loan debt. Also, if you got children below uh, college age and K-12, through you can actually use up to $10,000 a year there something to be aware of, not necessarily that I'm encouraging that. The 529 principal amount generally can be withdrawn tax-free, even if it's not used for education. In other words, the principal amount that went in can generally come out tax-free since those contributions weren't deductible for federal income tax purposes, although there are some states that do offer deductions and some state income taxes. But any earnings withdrawn and not used for qualified education purposes are going to be subject to income tax on a pro rata basis with a 10% early distribution penalty. However, the penalty may be waived if the withdrawal is a result of the beneficiary's death or disability, or if the beneficiary received a tax-free scholarship or other related tuition benefits. But given the high cost of tuition and other related education costs, in many cases, all of the 529 plans will be used for these purposes. However, there are some people who have saved for years, have accumulated large 529 balances that won't be used for education. For example, because the child doesn't attend college or earns a scholarship. But keep in mind, you can also change the beneficiary on 529 plans to another family member. So it isn't like because you have a very, very talented young a youngster, a grandchild, child, whatever, that earns that scholarship or doesn't need the money, you can transfer it to another family member. So, the Roth rollover of these funds is a welcome provision, but it begins to lose its luster once the limitations and hurdles are revealed. So let's talk about some of these rollover hurdles that we have to cross. First, it's not effective until 2024. That's not a big deal, but you just have to wait until next year. Also, the rollover must go to a 529 beneficiary, not the owner's Roth IRA, so it has to go to whoever the beneficiary of that 529 plan is. Again, that doesn't seem to be a big issue, but there are other limitations that you should know about. There's also a 15-year rule. The 529 must have been in existence for 15 years before any rollover is permitted. Other than accounts that were set up when beneficiaries are very young, many 529 plans don't meet this limitation right away, so you may have to wait a while until you hit that 15-year time frame. There's also the five-year rule. 529 contributions and earnings made in the last five years don't count for rollover treatment of this provision. So not only do they have to be in place for 15 years, but any money that you've put in in the last five years, you cannot roll that over. So this can also put a dent in the plan. Next, there's a $35,000 lifetime limit. This is where the wheels start to come off. When Secure 2.0 headlines on this 529 to Roth roller provision first came out, we were thinking that clients could turn around and roll over hundreds of thousands of $529 to free, tax-free to Roth IRAs. But the rollover provision is limited to that $35,000 lifetime. Still, it may be good news, but it does appear that the law of this limit is per beneficiary, not per owner. So you could change or have multiple beneficiaries on that account and roll it over, we think. 
So if you have several 529 plans with different beneficiaries like children or grandchildren, you might be able to use $35,000 rollover for each one of them if all of these conditions are met. Then there's also the annual contribution limit. So even though you have this lifetime limit of $35,000, it can't be all done all in one year. The maximum rollover allowed, assuming all other conditions of the provision are met, is limited to the amount that can be contributed to an IRA in that year. For example, the IRA contribution limit for 2023 is $6,500 or $7,500 if the beneficiary is 50 or over. Since this provision isn't effective until next year, we don't know what the annual limit is going to be because that limit will be adjusted once again for inflation. But even so, let's say the annual IRA contribution for 2024 goes up to $7,000, just a guess. But it's likely to stay at $6,500 since even with inflation, this amount rarely increases each year. But using the $7,000 annual contribution amount as an example, it's going to take five years to get that full $35,000 rolled over. And even in that case, no other IRA or Roth contributions can be made by the 529 beneficiary since the rollover uses up that annual contribution limit. So things are these are things to all keep in your mind. There's also the IRA contribution eligibility. Even if all these other tests are met, to qualify for a rollover to the beneficiary's Roth, the beneficiary is going to have to qualify for making a Roth or IRA contribution for that year by having wages or self-employed income. So they have to have income. For example, if the child has no employment income, then the rollover can't be done. In addition to the earnings test, Roth IRA contribution eligibility is limited by income. Another piece of good news is the income limit is waived for this purpose. For example, if an unmarried child has income over 153000 which is the 2023 limit, the 529 to Roth rollover can still be done, even though the child would not qualify for a Roth IRA contribution on their own. So, Brady, who actually benefits by all this? Well, the idea behind the provision is a good one. But it was a limited use for many. It works best for smaller balances, 35000 or less, or for those who would like to chip away at large 529 balances that won't be used for education. There are still open questions on this provision, such as whether changing beneficiaries of the 529 plan is going to cause that 15-year period to restart. We're going to have to wait until the IRS issues guidance to clear up this and many other questions that we still have about funding a 529 plan or an IRA Roth IRA with your 529 benefits. Spent yesterday's shows a whole bunch of time talking about budgets and congressional spending and government spending. You know, there's seven troubling milestones that are on the horizon for us, basically. Ernest Hemingway's first novel, The Sun Also Rises, explains how we went bankrupt, gradually and then suddenly. Americans have fallen deep into credit card debt or rely on high interest rates. Payday loans probably can relate. As a borrower's debt amounts, his credit score is downgraded, creditors demand higher and higher interest rates for additional lending. It's like you're gradually drifting down the river as you approach the rapids ahead. The current suddenly accelerates. The Congressional Budget Office annual budget outlook shows that when it comes to the nation's finances, the current is starting to pick up. The budget office, commonly known as CBO, can't predict how long it will take before we hit the rapids or go over the fells, but the CBO report offers a clear warning that it's time for hard work of rowing back upstream. Let's take a look at a couple of these projections that they've had. Since the start of the pandemic, CBO's interest assumptions have been optimistic at best. Last year, the agency underestimated interest costs for fiscal 22 by $76 billion. If interest rates continue to spike, things will go south much more quickly than the CBO's latest forecast suggests. Let's look at some of these. Well, 2023, they're forecasting this year that interest payments are going to jump 45%. That's one of the most troubling things about the latest budget office forecast under President Joe Biden's watch is how much the budget situation has deteriorated compared to last year's forecast that was released in May. Last year, CBO projected 23 interest rates would be $420 billion. Been less than a year, they now expect the annual payments for 23 to be about $200 billion higher or $640 billion. That's a 45% correction and mostly the result of rising interest rates since last year. 
Then there's 2026. So I talked about this a minute ago, but Americans are going to face across-the-board tax hikes, and that's because of the expiration of the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through that again, but we're going to find that that's another one of those hurdles that we're going to be facing. In 2027, we're going to find that the debt portion of GDP is going to triple in 20 years. What that means is that the, the shows that the federal debt held by the public will rise by roughly 105% of gross domestic product in 2027. That means the debt will be about three times larger as a share of the economy than it was in 2007 when the debt-to-GDP ratio was a mere 35%. Over the 20-year period, the debt has grown by eight times faster than the economy. Then the next hurdle that we're going to cross is 2028. And that's when the debt hits a trillion dollars, and that's when the interest hits. Suppressing defense spending, that means that we'll spend more interest rate on the debt than we do on national events. It'll be more than 13% of all federal outlays. Then in 2032 and 33, we're going to see Medicare and Social Security become insolvent. And, of course, that means that the trust funds will be totally exhausted. And without Congress doing something, we're going to need at least a 23% across-the-board cuts in benefits. We do expect that they're going to have to do something. We'll have to see what happens. 2046, debt is going to hit $100 trillion. That means that this national debt will held by the public will pass $100 trillion in 2046. In 2053, each household share of debt reaches $1 million. That means the total national debt will soar to $155 trillion. By 2053, that means every household will own at least $1 million on the national debt. And we're going to have to say this, another clean increase in the debt ceiling is going to be reckless. We doubt that that's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of arguing between now and the time that we cross over that national debt, them running out of money here by July or August or somewhere in there. Going to keep an eye on these things. You need to know about them. I'm going to keep talking about them. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake of a Sunday morning. Don't forget our live shows on Saturday at 11. If you got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks, and have a great week. voiced in Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Guests on Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue are not affiliated with CWM LLC. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, a registered investment advisor.